copy of God's Word, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Hear now the word of the living God. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved... Where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Now, O Lord, we ask that you would give us what we need to sit in the green pastures of your word. Lead us by still waters, we pray, that we may recognize the sweet and precious voice of our Savior as he speaks to us through this infallible and errant word. Comfort us, convict us, and guide us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. What surprises you in life Perhaps you're like me, and the longer you live, and perhaps the days in which we live, less and less surprises you, because you see more and more things. But sometimes in the course of our lives, surprises come our way. And just this past week, there were several situations where I observed surprise. One was a good one. A group of men got together to celebrate a particular brother and surprised him, or so we hoped to surprise him. Then there were other surprises for me. I was at an event where I was to play the piano for a group of individuals as we sang praises to the Lord. And before one particular session, the director of that session and I did not touch base. So I sat through the entire lecture wondering what song I was to play, hoping that I had the music to play it when the time came. It was definitely a surprise. Surprises abound. Peter seems to want us to not sit through the event of life and be surprised. Don't sit through the event of life and be surprised. He says it this way, don't think it strange or don't be surprised. Don't be shocked concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. Peter's words there, beloved, friends, Do not think it strange. Interestingly, that word strange is the same word that he used in chapter 4, verse 4, when he spoke of what unbelievers think about us. 
They're shocked. They're surprised. They think it's strange when we don't run headlong with them into their sins anymore. Now he's telling us, don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. This teaching comes in advance. If you read Christians of bygone eras, particularly the Puritans, you will see that they were intent on making sure the people of God were told in advance that suffering and persecution would come. For it would be too late to give Christ's people words for surprises after the surprise. Rather, training them in the the model of Peter and elsewhere Paul That trials will come, sufferings will come, ordeals and persecutions will come. So let me teach you in advance, they would say, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so that you're not surprised. Well, how does Peter do it? He says this, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. Now, some interpret this as a particular kind of trial. After all, Peter says, fiery trial Is this literally some kind of fire that would come upon this group of readers? Is it something specific, like what many would describe as the day of judgment or Armageddon? But I think it would be better to understand Peter's words as exactly what he's already said elsewhere in this letter. What did he say all the way back in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7? That there are trials that will come, and what does he call those trials, or what does he liken them to? A refining fire. Using Peter's own context, Peter doesn't have one particular event in view, but a variety of sufferings which are like fiery trials. Then he says again, as he did in chapter 1, they are there to refine you, to try you. So do not be surprised. What then, Peter, are we to hold on to so that we are not surprised, so that we don't think it strange when all manner of sufferings come? Well, I think Peter gives us at least four things in this passage to bolster our faith before suffering comes that we may not be surprised. The first is this, trials are to refine us. Now, this is not new. Peter has addressed this already in the letter, but let's look at this theme again. The trials are to refine us. That's what Peter says in verse 12. Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which, and then here it is, is to try you. Peter has already referenced this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. But Paul and James pick up on these themes as well. Turn over just a few pages to the book of James or hear it as I read James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Count it all joy, James says. Or how about what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 3 and following. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. 
Peter, Paul, and James all say similar things. God has a purpose behind the trials and sufferings that come your way. The Puritan Samuel Bolton said essentially these words. Relating to the believer, everything that God does to you, he does with thoughts of love. What in your life has been stripped away, believer, that you may look more like Christ? In just a moment, the kind of trial, the fiery trial that is referenced is clearly including persecution. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I I think it would be a mistake to only look at verse 12 as persecution. What in your life has been stripped away that you may look more like Jesus? And what has been forged within you during this crucible of suffering that you may be refined for his sake? Again, suffering can be so difficult. Trials can be so challenging. Sometimes they can press down so hard on us, we wonder if God's intention toward us is love. We wonder, perhaps, if our past sins are catching up, if God's mercy has run out. Again, the Puritan Samuel Bolton Listen to what he says, quote, God does not and cannot afflict his people for sin, nor does God afflict his people for sin as if such afflictions were payments or satisfactions for sin, and as if God's justice was not fully satisfied for sin by Christ. And if Christ had left something for us to bear by way of satisfaction, so far as afflictions are the sole fruits of sin, God does not bring them upon his people. Or in this respect, they are part of the curse. Afflictions upon wicked men are penal, a part of the curse. There is nothing medicinal in them. They are the effects of vindictive justice and not of fatherly mercy. But, but afflictions which come upon the godly are medicinal in purpose and are intended to cure them of sin. End quote. Peter tells us, And the Puritans and others just jump right in. Trials are to refine us. It's hard to press in to the future when in the midst of our present we are in great pain and suffering and trial and persecution. But let me ask you to join with me in just looking forward a few hours, days, weeks, or years into your future, into our future. There will not be a single day for all of eternity that you regret that you look like Christ. Peter wants you to understand that part of, not all of, but part of what the Lord does allow for your journey that is a vapor of time is that he uses trials to refine you, to try you, to test you, to show off his work in you. So don't be surprised when they come. We're not asked to love the suffering. Peter would simply say, don't be shocked. Don't be strained. Don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange. The trials are to refine you. But secondly, the trials point to joy. Now, I I word this carefully. The trials themselves are not joy. (laughs) They point to joy. Look here at the text. 
Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you, but rejoice. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. What do we mean when we say that secondly trials, sufferings, point to joy? Well, let's look. Peter says rejoice. We are to enact joy. We are to take joy. Because in the moments of our trials and sufferings, we are reminded that we are partaking in Christ's sufferings because of Christ's sake. Probably the most palpable example is in the book of Acts, chapter 5, verse 41. Turn there with me for just a moment. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. As is often the case in Acts, a bunch of Christians were dragged before religious leaders or secular leaders to give an account for why they were preaching in Jesus' name. Just note one verse, Acts chapter 5, verse 41. When they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now that's probably the most palpable example. We're persecuted. We can say we're participating in the sufferings of Christ. He suffered. We're suffering that his name may be advanced. Even though we don't like that idea, that makes the most sense to us. But what about cancer? What about emotional distress? What about unemployment? What about the death of a child? How do we reconcile that? How is that connected to the sufferings of Christ? We don't have time to fully exhaust all of those trials, but there is a future joy even in the midst of those kinds of sufferings because we know that God does all that he does towards his people for their good and for his glory and that even in the midst of those pains, God is using our trial for our good as well as the good of those who walk alongside us. Listen, sometimes I think the greatest thing that the Lord uses in this church body outside of the means of grace, that's first, that's primary, but think those of you who have journeyed here at Grace for at least a few years of the number of times that you have watched someone suffer in the crucible of suffering well and how that's refined them but how it's refined you and how we can say there is a joy in knowing that my sufferings have meaning now. I'm not aimlessly walking through a world that has been put together by a big bang and billions of years of evolution. I am walking through a world now where every single one of my sufferings, I know my gracious Savior has a design behind them. And it is to point me to this future joy. I am suffering not for my own redemption's sake, But as a redeemed one by the sufferings of Christ, I'm sharing in this sorrow and pain that I may be refined and come to embrace that eternal joy ready. Notice the connection to future joy that Peter says here. 
I don't know if you see it, but rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now, we don't have time to parse all of this out, but notice, hey, rejoice. So that in some way, when that day comes, you have more joy then than you do now. Rejoice now, exceeding joy then. What does exceeding joy look like? Well, we rejoice now with sorrow and pain, but this prepares us. It presses us into the day that is to come when there will be perfect rejoicing. As joyful as the most joyful Christian has been here on earth, whoever he or she is, the one who sings with the most joy to the Lord, the one who prays the most earnestly to the Lord, the one who is sanctified the farthest and has the greatest amount of spiritual joy, there still is imperfection in their joy. But there's coming a day when that imperfection will be gone, as well as the suffering. You ever sat in a church service next to someone who is in great pain, physically, spiritually, emotionally, and you see Christ-forged joy in them? How can this be? Perhaps in their life, in many cases, the Lord has used that suffering to increase their joy. This is an absolute paradox that only the living God could do. Can you imagine as they look to that day that is to come? How great will be their rejoicing? The text says exceeding joy. Exceeding joy. When Christ's glory is revealed. When we are told that we partake in Christ's sufferings, make no mistake, we don't suffer to pay for our sins. That's been done. There's been a definitive word on that. It is finished. He is risen. That's the definitive word. There is no suffering left for sins except for those who are outside of Christ. But we, Peter would say, and Paul would say elsewhere, we do suffer in this life and we now partake in the crucible of suffering to be forged into the image of Christ. And we are to embrace that, remembering that God has a purpose. Hey, when you suffer, it's not meaningless. God has not forgotten you. God is not purposeless toward you. He's also not bent against you in hatred as you suffer. So in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of the pain, you can actually have a kind of joy that the world doesn't have. God is doing good in the midst of this horrible pain. No one can say that but a blood-bought believer. Trials, fiery trials, they are meant to try us and they point to joy. They point to joy. Again, they are not the joy. They point to it though. Well, Peter continues, doesn't he? Verse 14, if you are approached for the name of Christ, now here is a particular kind of trial, isn't there? You're approached for the name of Christ or reviled 
or persecuted. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. He's repeating the theme. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You see, Peter would have us to see a third thing about trials. They proclaim our blessing. It's not all that an original of a point. That's essentially what Peter says. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. What might this mean? Well, again, you could translate that word reproached as reviled or insulted. Thomas Schreiner, in his commentary on the book of John, or excuse me, the book of First Peter, makes the argument that men may insult us, but the eternal God will bless us. Think about that. You are reproached, you are insulted for the name of Christ, and in that self-same moment, as the insult comes off the lips of an unregenerate person, you have the opportunity to remember that God is blessing you. You are blessed. Isn't this what our Lord Christ said in that great Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are you, when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. A particular kind of suffering, namely being insulted for the name of Christ, is an opportunity for you to be reminded that the name that you were just cursed for is a name that was cursed to take your sins. It is the one, the living Christ, that you are in union with And so that insult, as painful as it is or may be in that moment, is an opportunity for you to be reminded, I'm in union with him. And I'm actually encouraged that in this moment, people see enough of Christ in me to insult me for his sake. Teenagers, young adults, you will be insulted for the name of Jesus if you live long enough showing off your Savior. In fact, you will be insulted in ways that perhaps I or your parents, grandparents, were not. God has perhaps a different providence for you. You are growing up in a country that seems, unless the Lord pours out revival by His Spirit, which He could, you're growing up in a country that seems to be more hostile to the things of Christ than it used to be. On playgrounds and locker rooms and school hallways and workplaces, if in sincerity of heart you seek to stand for Christ, however small the issue may be, and you are reviled, you are insulted, You need to tell yourself, the word of God says, in this moment, this is a reminder to me that I am blessed of God. For people have just said what my name is. I have God's name upon me. There's another part of our verse. Notice verse 14, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, you didn't earn your salvation by being insulted. It's the other way around. 
God has given you salvation, and now as you live out that salvation, you're going to be insulted. But there's another phrase. Some of our translations have this verse. Some of them do not. It says this, On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. Now without getting into too muddy a waters, that verse is there in many of the translations because it was there in the Greek manuscripts that many of our translations are based on. Other translations are using other kinds of Greek manuscripts. We need not worry about the reliability of Scripture. I would submit to you this verse belongs here. It's been here since the beginning of time. The majority of manuscripts have it. The preservation of God's Word down through the ages have it. But what does it say? On their part, he is blasphemed. But on your part, he is glorified. What does that mean? Well, it means at the moment that they are insulting you, they are blaspheming God, and you are glorifying God. In the very moment where the words are said, blasphemy is happening, and God is getting glory. Only the true and living God could make it so that he is glorified even among the blasphemies of men. So take heart. When men insult you for Christ's sake, they are blaspheming God, and yet simultaneously you are glorifying God. This is how trials proclaim our blessing. This is how persecutions can remind us that we are blessed in Christ. Now, Peter is not encouraging us to go out in the world and to try to get people to blaspheme God. We need to be careful of that. Sometimes we get so zealous for the name of God that in our own sinfulness, we start to try to demonstrate how blasphemous people can be. Evangelism was never meant to be an argumentative way of getting people to sin more. No, 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 no. We're not to try to be insulted, to try to get people to blaspheme the name of God. No, don't be surprised, Peter says. This is going to happen. Trials are going to come, and a particular kind of trial, you being insulted for the name of Christ. And so when it comes, when that blasphemy comes across your ear, as they blaspheme your God, you, by his grace, are at the self-same time glorifying God. So don't be surprised. Now notice Peter continues in verse 15 by reminding us that our suffering, this blessing that we have in Christ, and the suffering that comes with it for a brief time should be used for Christ and not for evil. Look at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody, you could translate that meddler in other people's matters. He's already covered this theme before, hasn't he? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, Peter says these words, For this is commendable if, because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongly. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer... If you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Or chapter 3, verse 17, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And it's important, perhaps in our victim mentality, Western culture 
time period in which we live to be regularly reminded the suffering that is in view is the suffering for seeking to follow the ways of Christ. Peter would have us to understand we're not to say that if we're suffering the consequences of our sin, that that's the category that he has in mind. Can the Lord redeem even that? Yes. But Peter's not giving us a license to say, I murdered three people and now I'm in jail. Look at how I'm suffering. It's a reminder that I'm blessed. No, if you don't repent of that sin, you are cursed. So Peter has regularly reminded us, hey, there's a particular kind of suffering we have in view here. Living the life of Christ and as trials come, cancer, emotional despair, uh, unemployment, all of these things, and we live those out with a view to his glory. Or when a particular trial comes, like insults for his name, be reminded These trials are to try us and refine us. They point to joy and they proclaim the blessing that we have in God. Now before we leave verse 15, please notice, beloved, what is listed here. The worst of sins. We like to kind of whitewash these, don't we? At least I'm not a murderer or a thief. Are you a busybody? Because it's right next to the word murderer in the Bible. What is a busybody or a meddler? Well, it's, it's, it's a talker. An overt talker, you know. Hey, did you hear about so-and-so? It's a gossip. But it's a, it's a subtle kind of gossip. It is the person who's kind of going through life, poking their heads in and everybody's events. Now, we're not to think that that sin is to the same degree, particularly in consequence, of a murderer. And yet Peter has no issue saying, hey, don't suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a meddler in other people's matters. By implication, we can say, don't murder. Don't steal. Don't do evil things. Don't meddle in other people's matters. How tempting it is to be a busybody, particularly when we shroud it with Christian language. Be careful. Be careful. Sufferings for righteousness' sake refine us. They point us to joy. They proclaim our blessing. Peter says one other word before he points us to our final point. Look at verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. We are not to be ashamed in our sufferings. Paul, that great example of the cause of Christ, says in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is our sufferings something that causes us to be ashamed of our master? And sometimes the world, or perhaps Satan, the world outwardly, Satan even in our own heads, you really think Jesus loves you and he's going to let you suffer like this? 
How easy it is for us to grow ashamed out of fear of man. Out of the desire for praise, our own internal unbelief and pride. Peter would say, hey, when you suffer, remember these things, but don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. When you suffer, when the insult comes on the boardwalk as you are evangelizing for Christ. When you plead with a woman, hey, keep, keep your child. We will help you. Keep your child. Let it live. When you say to someone at the Thanksgiving table, when they press you, I, I actually think marriage is between one man and one woman. When your buddies say, hey, we're going to get together at so-and-so's house this weekend and have a party. There's going to be lots of alcohol there. I know we're all underage, but you say, no, I, I'm not going to come. In all of those cases and more, when you suffer, glorify God in this matter and don't be ashamed You have no reason to be ashamed of the name that is above every other name. Listen to Paul, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. When we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the life of Christ also may be manifested in our body. Well, Peter would give us one more thing at least to help us not be surprised, to be prepared when fiery trials come, whether they are Trials of persecution or just broader sufferings that in God's providence is in our path. And that is this. These sufferings, these trials keep us focused on eternity. They keep us focused on eternity. Look at verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Now this for the time has come goes all the way back up to this idea of don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange. Hey, don't think it's strange because the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? Quickly then, there's an Old Testament backdrop here. Passages like Ezekiel 9, Malachi 3, judgment beginning with the temple or the people of God and moving outward. Well, who is the temple now? Well, Jesus is and we in him. The church is the temple of God. So that Old Testament backdrop is there. I won't read it, but you could take some time this afternoon and just see this as you read Malachi 3, verses 1 through 4. This idea of judgment moving outward from the temple or the people of God. Now the phrase household of God reminds us that these are God's people. The suffering then in view is refining judgment. It's a suffering that brings purity It purifies in at least two ways, doesn't it? Either it takes true blood-bought believers and the suffering is used to purge them further of their 
clinging to sin. Listen, sometimes suffering prevents us, purifies us, refines us, causes us to repent of sin. But as the household of God, sometimes suffering comes and what does it do? When it gets really difficult, it removes people who are not actually in the household of God. The time has come for judgment to begin at the household of God. There are many themes in the Bible. One of the main themes of the Bible is God's singular purpose in the destruction of sin by the glorious name of his Son. God will cause suffering to come even upon Christ's people, that they be further purged of the clingings to the things of this world. And in some some cases, some will leave the faith. Make no mistake, friend, they did not deconstruct a faith that is weak and artificial and can't hold up with a man or woman of modern science. No, they're not deconstructing. They're walking away from something that never was at root in their hearts. And in this purging element, we are so sad to see it, but the Lord allows it to come so that his house, his people, are actually his people. Notice what he says next. What will be the end, boys and girls? That means what's going to happen to those who do not obey the gospel of God? If even Christians have to suffer and the Lord is refining us, fitting us even for heaven by his grace, what will be the end result for those who are outside of Christ? What will the fire do to those outside of the blessed Christ. Peter then quotes from Proverbs chapter 11, verse 31. If the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Friend, you need to know that there is coming judgment for sins. It's not popular to talk about, but the scriptures are clear that we rebel against a holy and righteous God who is good and right and gives us good and right instruction and we rebel against it. Our first parents did and every human being since has except for one, Christ. And he came and lived a perfect life and died and as he died, the Lord God poured out judgment on him in the place of everyone who would ever trust in him. He is the substitute But if you don't have a substitute, then the judgment is yours to bear. And as the text makes clear, what will be the end of you if you don't receive, or as Peter says, obey the gospel of God? What is the gospel? Paul says it succinctly in 1 Corinthians 15. It's what Jesus has done. He came, he died for sins, he was raised, and he was seen. The gospel is what Christ has done. Please make this crystal clear in your minds. Hear me on this. The gospel is not what you do. The gospel is not what you do. It's not what you don't do. It's not being a better person. It's not being religious. It's not coming to church. It's not trying to be theological. The gospel is Jesus Christ died for sinners and he was raised and he says to every sinner who has ears to hear, come to me. And I will be the blood that covers your sins. 
This is the gospel of God, the good news that salvation for wicked rebels is available. And Peter says, what will happen to those who don't embrace this gospel? There is no other hope. What are you going to do? Are you going to go at it alone? Are you going to take the law of God and say, I can be moral? Can you? Can you only ever, always, and perfectly have God as your only God? Can you only, always, and perfectly worship him and revere his name and his day? Have you perfectly obeyed authority? Have you never murdered with your words, your thoughts, or your body? Never once lusted inappropriately or destroyed any marriages? You've always been for the good of the marriages and the purity of the marriages all around you. You've never stolen. You've never told a lie once. And you are so blessed you've never been discontent, never coveted. Is that you? Is that your record? Because that is the righteous record that is required of any who will see the face of God. And only Christ has kept that. Will you not run to Christ seeing that judgment is coming your way, friend? If even Christians in the household of God still go through refining for sin, but who are safe in that refining in Christ, what will come of you, Peter says, if you are to embrace the fire without Christ. So then he says this to suffering Christians. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. This is our posture during trials. We entrust our being to God. And notice who this God is. He is faithful creator. Meaning, faithful. He's trustworthy. He never fails. And he's creator. He's sovereign. Who knows better how you work and what is best for you than for the one who made you? He's trustworthy, faithful. He's creator. He's sovereign and knows how to care for us because he made us. Boys and girls, some of you know that catechism. Why should you glorify God? Because he loves me, he made me, and he takes care of me. Don't be surprised. The trials will come. Don't let them surprise you. In fact, Peter would say, here's why you shouldn't be surprised. They're in the hands of God to try you. They point you to joy. They proclaim your blessing in Christ. And they keep you focused on eternity. Let's pray. Living God, help us to breathe in the truth of this text. By your spirit, would you water sometimes the weak faith of our hearts. Help us to know further how to apply this text into our lives. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.